may be seated. We are once again today in our sermon series in James's letter. If you have your Bible, can you turn with me to James chapter 4, or the uh, text for today is printed, I think they're on page 9 in your bulletin. I'm going to read James 4, verses 1 through 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Isn't it this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. We pray for the transforming work of your Holy Spirit now, our God, as we hear this text in Jesus' sweet name. Amen. I want to try for a moment to put ourselves in, in the head of this pastor, this man named James, the brother of Jesus. First thing we know about James is that he was a Jew, and you know, it's, um, a, and a Jew in his particular time, it's sometimes maybe hard to realize what it was like to live in a culture where not only your life, but the whole life of kind of everybody in your society just revolved around God. God was absolutely real to these people. And he wasn't just any God, you know, some sort of deity, some remote deity. He was God active in the world, God commanding, God sovereign, God the king. He had given his Torah to Moses from Sinai, the, the law, and, and spoken with authority, and, and your whole life was lived under that. And that was, that was being a Jew. And, and part of that was, you realize as a Jew, there are, there are God's people, and then there are the not God's people. And that was a very big thing for the Jewish people. God had a people, and there were a lot of people in this world who were not God's people. And they thought of themselves in that very divided way, separate from the nations, the Gentiles. And that's, that's James's life, you know, his whole life growing up. And then he believes in Jesus. And I wonder how, how this poor man sort of navigated the discovery as he starts following this, his actual brother, Jesus, you know, the carpenter from Nazareth, who is, he, he realizes Jesus is actually God, this God he worships, God in flesh, and he is this long-awaited Messiah that Israel's been waiting for. But what I think really would have shocked James is the realization as he looked around at God's people and their response to Jesus, the discovery that God's people, God's people, they do not love, they do not value, they do not prioritize what God loves and values and prioritizes. 
at the heart level. These Jews, these people of God, they have the same loves, they have the same values, they have the same priorities as the Gentiles, the not-God people. Jesus called them an adulterous generation. And particularly the teachers of Israel, the leaders, the rulers, they saw themselves, as we talked about last time, as wise and understanding. You know, we know God. We know God's will. They were very into the Bible. And yet, at a heart level, they were so determined to maintain their status, their power, and their position that they murdered their Messiah, and they made war against his followers. And I just wonder how traumatic this must have been for James, trying to sort out how to think about things with such disillusionment about God's people. And now he's pastoring, even through this letter, he is pastoring what he calls in chapter 1 the 12 tribes of God's new Israel, the, the new Israel God is forming around Jesus, not just Jews now, but also Gentile believers. And what James is doing throughout this letter, as you've seen, he is looking for the fruit of some new hearts. Because James understands something about history, and that is that God, through the prophets, foretold that when Messiah comes, God's going to do something that Moses could not do. God's going to take his law, and he's going to write it on the heart. And James knows that is what is promised in his time to these followers of Jesus, God is going to write their, his law on their hearts. And he's already talked in this letter about the fact that when what he calls the word of truth is implanted in your heart, implanted in your heart. Now, the word of truth is not just the Torah, the, the law of Moses. It's, it's everything God has ever said now channeled through Jesus. It's the law through Jesus. It's the prophets through Jesus. It's the testimony of Jesus' disciples and apostles all centering on Jesus, when that whole revelation of God from Genesis to James's own letter, when all of that word of God is implanted in your heart, James knows when the Holy Spirit of God takes that word and puts it inside of you where it's ruling in your inmost being, it's going to change your loves, it's going to change the standards you live by, it's going to change your priorities. You are going to seek first the kingdom of God. That's what's going to happen in your heart. And as a direct result of that heart change, James knows it's going to change the way you speak. It's going to change the way you act in the world. And that's what he focuses on so much in this letter. Are you speaking? Are you acting as one in whom the word of God has been implanted? And I, I, I'm helped, I guess, you know, partly as a pastor, but just as a Christian, I'm really helped by the fact that James focuses on speech and action. Because you know the sure way, you all know this, the sure way to find out what's really in your heart you know, you think you know what's in your heart. I think I know what's in my heart. But the real way to find out what's in your heart is to look at your words, look at your actions. Jesus said, by the fruit of your life, that's how you know what's going on in your heart. I mean, I was thinking about last week's, you know, text about the wisdom from above. And if you were to ask me, Ben, do you think that your life is basically kind of fueled by the wisdom that comes from God? Or is it more fueled by that devilish wisdom we learned about last time, that, that bitter zeal, jealousy, self-seeking, ambition. Which of those rules in your heart? The word of the Father or your own kind of jealousy and ambition? I'd say, you know, I really like to think that as, you know, a Christian and, and as a, you know, a Christian minister, you know, that I am, I'm wise, I'm understanding, I believe the gospel, I read the Bible, I go to church, I've been raised in the, raised in the church, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all in on the wisdom from above. And then James throws me this curveball in chapter 4, verse 1. All right, Ben Miller. So then what's causing all of these fights and quarrels? You notice he doesn't say, do you have fights and quarrels? 
He says, why do you have fights and quarrels? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you have had, have had a fight or a quarrel in your life in the last week? Because if you don't raise your hand, you are lying to me. Where do they come from? That's the curveball. For James, and this is really what I want to talk about mostly today, really one big idea. For James, social problems are spiritual problems. That's what I want to talk about today. Social problems, he says, are spiritual problems. I want to think about this, first of all, in the first six verses, just kind of open this up a little bit. So Eric has got me reading Jordan Peterson's latest book, Beyond Order, and early in that book, he tells a story about his granddaughter, and I relate to this so much. He he said when his little granddaughter was about 18 months old, she had this utterly endearing habit of pointing at things. You know, you've seen this. I remember my kids, and they had chubby little fingers, and it looks cuter when your arm is not quite as long as mine, but like they point at something. And they kind of have this furrowed brow look, and they kind of look at you, you know, as they're pointing. And, and Peterson talks about what's actually going on there, because what's happening with that child is their little thought world is being formed by the interaction with you because they think that's interesting to look at, but what they really want to know is, do you think it's interesting to look at? They point for your benefit so they can find out how you react to what they see, because they, they get a sense of what's important in the world by kind of, you know, social interaction. Like, they point, and they see what do people react. Do you look at that? And, oh, yeah, sweetie, that's a bird. Aren't they cool? And then they might point at it again another time to make sure you're serious. Yes, it's still a bird. Aren't they great? And they're being formed. Their inner world, what's inside of them, is being formed by these social interactions. And, you know, that happens throughout life. Because a part of what keeps, you know, so, so, you know we're, most of us, as we get into adulthood, you realize that part of what keeps your inner world, your thought world, your feeling world from really deteriorating is the challenge that comes with social interactions. Peterson says this very helpfully. He says, we outsource the problem of sanity. People remain mentally healthy not merely because of the integrity of their own minds, but because they are constantly being reminded how to think, act, and speak by those around them. So you guys know I wrestle with depression, and if I have a depressive episode over a weekend, and I come in here on Sunday, you know, afternoon, and I'm really feeling like garbage, and everything in me just kind of wants to drag in here, and, you know, I'm just kind of barely can get my knuckles off the floor, and, but, but being around people helps me to begin to sort of navigate how do we have inner pain and not, you know, ruin relationships, and, and not just have that spillover so everyone's sort of de- dealing with my dirty laundry and so on. And, and you, know, you, you can imagine how these social expectations can become oppressive, where you're just constantly kind of hiding things inside, or you know, the, the expectations of your social group could really kind of weigh on you. But in general, you, you, it's really wonderful and healthy and formative to be around people that get you out of your head, get you out of your feelings, help you understand what's acceptable, so you don't become impossible to live with, which actually most of us could if our inner worlds kind of ran, went to seed. But what's interesting is that you know that you don't just, you you see this, I'm sure, you don't just develop your inner world through your social life. You also discover that inner world through your social life. I may not really know what I think until I've talked to someone. I may not really know what I feel until I'm around people and I begin to socialize. I begin to discover things that are inside of me. And, of course, one of the things we very quickly discover is that not everything that is revealed, not everything that is exposed in my socializing is good. It's a basic feature of adult responsibility 
many people don't get here, sadly, but it is a basic feature of adult responsibility to realize that many of my social problems, many of the, the struggles and challenges that I face in my social life, now not all of them by any means, but many of them are not out there. Many of these social problems are actually in here. The reason my relationships are having trouble is because of me, because of what is inside of me. That is a basic feature of adult responsibility to get in touch with that, that the fights and the quarrels are coming from passions. They're coming from what James calls, uh, probably a better translation would be cravings. You see it in verse 1? I really want you to have your text out. I want you to be able to follow what I'm doing here. Where do the fights and quarrels come from? James says they come from cravings. You're having social problems because you want stuff. You've got passions. You've got desires for pleasure. And those desires for pleasure escalate into demands. I must have this. I am owed this. This shall be how it is, right? Now, James really kind of goes crazy a little bit, doesn't he, in this, in verse 2. I mean, he says, you desire and don't have, so you murder. And that just, you know, (laughs) James, you know, calm down, buddy. You know, it's shocking, but we also have heard that from Jesus, haven't we? You desire and you don't have. Jesus said, when you have anger and hatred toward your brother in your heart, he compares it to, to, to murder, doesn't he? And can I just be honest with you guys, and I hope you can just be honest with yourselves. I've had to really search my own heart just almost in agony at points this week thinking about this. You know, the obvious reality watching you relate to people and watching me relate to people is you want what you want more than you want the well-being of other people. Can we just really get honest about that? You want what you want more than you want the well-being of other people, and we can see it in how you treat people. I can see it in how I treat people. I'm willing to really go against other people's well-being because I want something. Just one example would be the fact that many of us reach a place where we are so sick and tired of the suffering that's involved in relating with this person, we just have an an aversion to that suffering, and we really just cut them off. You know, we even use crazy language like, you're dead to me, in extreme cases, right? There is a kind of murder in the heart. I don't want to deal with you anymore. I want you out of my life. That feeling, right? That's, it's awfully close to murder. And, of course, James is thinking about the fact that the cravings of the leaders of Israel literally, literally led them to murder Jesus. Well, that might seem like, wow, that's really out there. Well, closer to home, you know, closer to our own experience, he goes on in verse 2 to say, well, you covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, that I hope we can all relate to. I really, I mean, I'm sure we can. And I want to be, I want to clarify something quickly. This is not fights and quarrels. What are fights and quarrels? Well, they're not intense but principled disagreements. You can have intense principled disagreement. My friend Miriam Kamel points this out in her commentary, because the reality is, you, you know, you cannot talk seriously about truth and error, about good and evil, about wisdom and folly. You, I mean, you can't take this stuff seriously and talk about it seriously without real differences emerging, in how people think and how they process and what their convictions are and kind of what their, their standards are and, 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 and fervency comes forth. You know, you should care about truth. You should care about goodness. You should care about what's wise versus what's foolish. And, and your heart is in it and there's some fire and that's fine. There should be some heat about those things. Agreeableness is not the chief Christian virtue. Might need to be said occasionally in the 21st century. Being agreeable is not the chief Christian virtue. There's nothing wrong with being agreeable, but you can be agreeable to the point where you're a coward. You can be agreeable to the point where you're compromised. Goodness must be argued for. Truth must sometimes be fought for even. But 
let's be careful because you also know if it's true, goodness and truth must be argued for, sometimes even fought for. Badness can also be fought for. And goodness can be fought for very, very badly. And it brings us back to this issue that's been under the surface since the opening of James's letter. James says, you, you fight and quarrel because you covet, because you desire. And you've heard this in the very beginning of his letter, you know, all the way back in chapter one. What was it that challenged the father of lights and his provision for you and his word to you and just being able to rest in his care? What challenges your obedience to him? Because he loves you and he takes care of you and his will for you is good and he'll provide what you need. What challenges that and says, no, go do something else? James says, you're tempted by your own desires. God isn't tempting you to sin. God can't be tempted by evil. He doesn't tempt you, but your desire will tempt you that unruly thing in you that says, I think I might know better than the Father in heaven. Chapter 3, we heard the same sort of thing. So God has this wisdom from above, this wisdom for our lives, but in our hearts, James says, be careful, because if you have that bitter zeal, that jealous you know, frustration with the ways that my life has not been what I want it to be, or I'm being slighted or offended by other people, or ambition, that self-seeking, you know, he says, if that's in your heart, don't... <laughs> Don't be false to the truth. That worm, that parasite, it's challenging the wisdom from above. I want what I want. Desire is such a strange thing. I, I, it's hard to preach on this well because I'm always a little nervous about making people think that desire itself is a problem. Desire is part of being a creature. You cannot live as a creature and not desire. God made you to desire. In fact, you know, C.S. Lewis made the great point. We don't desire enough. Our desires are too weak but then what goes wrong? Well, you can start to, this is sin. You, you know, it's what sin really is. You can start to want what God has forbidden. God has said no to this, and I say, oh, yes, to that. That's, that's an unruly desire. Or more likely, because I think most of you probably, you've watched with God long enough, you realize if God says no, I'm going to say, you know what, maybe I'm kind of pulled toward that, but I'm, you know, I, I should really trust God and obey. But, it, you know, it's, it's more complicated because you can also want what God has said is good, Please follow me here, beloved. You can want something God has said is good, but you can want it at the expense of other things that are also good. You can want one thing so much, you stop wanting other things God has also said are good, and you must want them as well. Or sometimes you can want something more than something that's actually better. You can want the lesser thing at the expense of the greater thing. And in fact, the Bible tells us you can actually want something more than you want ultimate goodness himself. You can actually want something more than you want God, who is per the perfection of goodness. This is what the older writers used to call disordered desire or inordinate, unordered desire. You can get to a point where you actually want a bowl of stew more than you want a relationship with God. You can get to a point where you want those 30 pieces of silver more than you want the Messiah, the Savior of the world. I mean, it's just stunning when you kind of see it placed in, in, in those terms before us. And that brings us to the end of verse 2, where James turns a corner and he says, you don't have what you desire. Why? Because you do not, you don't ask. Now, up to this point in James, James's work here, you, you don't even need to be a theist. You don't even need to believe, or you don't even need to be a believer in God, let alone a Christian to follow what he's saying. I mean, you know, secular psychologists will tell you, you know, social problems come from internal things too. But now James, at the end of verse two, he goes deeper when he says, you don't ask. 
And he really here goes to the very core of the spiritual problem beneath our various social problems. And he says, you have not taken your desire. You have not taken it and entrusted it to God. You have not gone to him and asked for what you desire. You are living like you do not have a father. You know, kids who know they're loved, they ask all the time. I know this. <laughs> they ask constantly because they know they're loved. They know they've got a father. They ask because they have a relationship with their father and they expect that he'll take care of me and they just go all the time with what they want, with what they desire, with what they need. And sometimes the reason you and I are fighting and conflicted in our lives is because we just quite simply have not gone to God and said, God, I am laying this desire before you. I am asking you for it. I mean, for, I, an example, that I'm, I mean, I'm kind of living right now. I don't think there's anything any of us who are parents desire more than the well-being of our children. I didn't know you could desire something as strongly as you want your children's well-being. I mean, I thought I, I you know, until I had kids, I didn't really grasp how visceral it could be to just want, some, want such, such good things for another human being. I mean, it's just, it's just in your guts as a parent. It can drive your kids crazy. But I sometimes have to ask myself, have I taken my desires for my children to God? Because, I mean, you know, you guys know parents and children, that's one relationship where we have a lot of conflict sometimes. Have I asked God? God, give my children wise hearts. Have you actually asked that? Have you asked God, give my children receptive hearts to you. God, make me a dad my kids can trust. Make me a dad my kids can love. James says sometimes you don't have what you want because you don't go to God with what you want. You do not ask him. And then he goes even, even further in. You know, he says in verse 3, and this is really painful, he says, well, and there's something else. You ask and you don't receive from God because you come on your terms. You don't ask because you want God's glory and because you want good, real good to happen in the world, whatever the cost to you. You want to spend what you get on your passions and your cravings. It's really about you at some level. And you think the God, when you pray to him and you cry out for what you want, you think God does not see how selfish that actually is. You think God doesn't see through how much it's really about you and not about his glory. You think God doesn't see through how ignorant I am when I go to my knees and I lay my best life before God and ask him to give it to me. And he says, you don't have any idea what you're talking about. You ask amiss, you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. God loves you too much to give you what you demand on your terms. And then, oh my, he just goes in for the jugular in verse 4 as if we're not, haven't been sobered enough already. He says, you adulterous people. This is heavy stuff. It's not often a pastor looks at his congregation and says, you cheaters. You adulterers and adulteresses. Wow. You know, it's interesting. Even in a culture that celebrates sexual immorality, that celebrates, in fact, demands a total absence of constraint on sexual desires and impulses, there is still I might add with no moral foundation left to justify this, but there is still this lingering sense, even in our completely immoral, intentionally immoral society, there's still this lingering sense that if you betray the trust and affection of the people you're most intimate with, there's something about that that's just dirty. Something about that is low. 
and not how it should be. How dare you? How could you? How could you? And that's the language James uses. Beloved, God made you what you are. God gives you everything you have. You are breathing his air. You live because he chooses that you should live. You, every gift you have is from his hand. And you've been very ungrateful and disobedient to him, and yet he pays for all your sins by killing his son for you. He gives you the righteousness of his son Jesus, the obedient life of his son Jesus, reckons that to your account in order that you might be completely forgiven, and he offers you free of charge with no payment needed up front and no payment needed on the back end. He just, for Jesus' sake, he offers to you his kingdom, and he says, inherit the, heaven, the new heavens and new earth with my son Jesus. That is God. That is your father. The one who has shepherded every moment of your life to this very moment. The God in whose hand is your life breath and whose are all your ways and who loves you, dear saint, more than you love yourself. That is your God. So how can you live for what the godless live for? How can you love most what the godless love most? How can you serve mammon? How can you seek the gifts as if there is no giver? How can you embrace what is normal among those who ignore God? How can you adopt the lifestyle priorities of those who defy your Lord and your Father? How can this be? How dare you, he says. How dare you prefer Caesar to Christ? You adulterous generation. It's a heavy thing to hear. And yet, notice verse 5, because God doesn't change. And yet, even now, verse 5, this God, this God who loves his people with a jealous love, you try wooing my wife. Watch me hulk. I love her jealously. God loves you jealously. He refuses to let someone else have your heart. But that God, James says, who yearns jealously with love that we actually cannot imagine over the spirit he's made to dwell in us and is rightly angered by our pride. He's angered by the adultery. He's angered by our sleeping with other lovers. He's angered by the waywardness that says, I'll seek goodness elsewhere, thank you. That God, with all of his jealousy, you'll notice in verse 6, he stands like the father with the prodigal son. He stands with open-handed grace. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He never changes. Despite all the wandering, despite all the adultery, despite all the hard-heartedness and the insanity, he stands and he's ready to give grace. And beloved saints, 
I don't know where you are with all of this, but I can tell you this, and I say it to myself too, all of your wants, all of your passions, all of your goals, all of your cravings, all of your bucket list, all of your quarrels, all of your fights, they pale in comparison with the urgency of returning to this God. Let me say now briefly something about the fact that social problems, because they are spiritual problems, they must be spiritually cured. Social problems must be spiritually cured. Because James turns that corner in verse 7, and what we'll find, I think, as we look at our lives closely is that social problems, I assume you have them, I certainly do, these social problems are an invitation to spiritual healing. You know, today's medicine, today's medicine system, it conditions us to suppress symptoms. Give me, some, give me a pill. I want, I want the symptoms to go away. Rather than developing wholeness, and you'll notice that that's just not how it works. Actually, it's not how it works physically. It's certainly not how it works spiritually. There is no symptom suppression here. As James talks to us about the cure in verses 7 through 10, there is no symptom suppression here. There is no quick fix after an hour of therapy. You know, my wife and I went to the therapist. Now we're good. Please. God is after wholeness. And notice what he says will bring wholeness. This is a regimen for health. This is not a quick fix. This is not symptom suppression. He says in verse 7, first of all, stop demanding what you want and start asking what God wants. That's where you have to start. You're having fights and quarrels with somebody. Submit yourselves to God. You've got to stop demanding what you want and start asking what does God want in this situation, in this relationship. Act like God is in charge because he is. You're accountable to him. That's the big thing that's going to like shake us out of our just going at it with each other. Bow the knee unironically. Not like, okay, Lord, I bow. No, bow the knee unironically. Submit yourself to God. Acknowledge to him. I have to, I've been thinking about what this means in my own life. Acknowledge to him from the heart, I am comprehensively, I belong to you, and I am accountable to you. That has got to be the starting point. You are not going to have any healing in your relational conflicts until that happens in your heart. You bow the knee to God, and you say, first of all, you are in charge. It is what you want that is going to rule this situation. Resist the devil. You need to reject the devil's whisper in your ear, and it's in every one of our ears that what you want is better than what God wants. That's the temptation, isn't it? It's in my ear every day. I think I, I, think I know what's good for Ben Miller, and God speaks, and he says, you need to resist that lie of the devil, that what you want is better than what God wants. Sin is crouching at your door, Cain. The serpent is at the gate of Eden. You need to resist that demonic wisdom. It is just not true that my best life lies in getting what I want. Can I say that again, beloved? It is just not true that my best life lies in getting what I want. My best life lies in getting what God wants. Resist the devil and draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I love this because it's not God bellowing at us in wrath from some high mountain where there's thunder and lightning. He says, come near to me. Come near he gives more grace. Cling to the cross. Your debt is paid. It is finished. Rest in Christ. His righteousness is in your account. Be at peace. But because you have peace with God, you come. You come to me. You draw near. And you draw near and you repent of your demands. You repent of your words. You repent of your deeds. And I mean get specific. Draw near to God. Tell him how you have sinned. And I, I think it's important as you cleanse your hands, what have you done? Purify your hearts. What have you demanded in your heart? That's repentance. 
You'll notice he goes on to say in verse 9, open then your emotions to grief and to heaviness. You know, nobody wants to hear this. Nobody wants to hear this. We live in a generation that the only thing that really, everyone's after good feelings. I want to feel happy all the time. You know what the truth is? Sometimes happiness will destroy you. Feeling good will be your undoing. There are times when the healthiest thing you can experience is grief. Be wretched and mourn. Stop laughing. Let some gloom settle over your soul. Let it hurt. I have loved something more than Jesus. I've wanted something more than God. I have a sovereignty problem. Let it hurt. How I've... How I've repaid the Lord who bought me with his blood. And do it together. Because it's interesting, it's not so obvious in the English, but in the Greek, the pronouns here, they're all plural. Y'all do this together. And this is how I want to conclude, just to offer a suggestion about how to do this. If you want to get serious about friendship with God, and I know you do, can I suggest something to you in light of all of this? Maybe for a while, just take, a, take an hour a week. Like, get, get some discipline about this. You know, take an hour a week, maybe an hour a month, but take some time on a regular basis, at least for a while, and probably it'd be good for life. And, and take that time, take that hour, and just sit there and list every conflict in your life. Every conflict. Because those conflicts are great benchmarks of your spiritual health. Can I just say to you guys, and I don't, I'm not trying to be melodramatic in saying this, showing up for church is no big deal. I mean, it's good, it's important, but, you know, it's not that hard to sit and fill a pew for 45 minutes. But your relationships, your conflicts, that's a great place to find out how, you really, how healthy you really are spiritually. Are you really walking as a friend of God? Lay those conflicts out. Just write them down. Put them out on the table, and then ask yourself some questions. I've been asking myself these questions. Really, really ask yourself in this fight, in this conflict, in this quarrel, in this strife, in this thing that's breaking down, what do I want? What do I feel I need? What is it? And don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. It might be perfectly good. It might be perfectly honorable. But ask yourself, what do I want? What am I craving? Ask yourself, too, what does the other person want? What does this other person feel they need? That will begin to open you up to their humanity in the situation. Because you know what? We get very blind to the fact that their wants are as real as yours. Their felt needs are as real as yours. Lay that all out. Think about it. Ponder those things. But then get to this question, because this is really where the surgery begins on our hearts. Then ask yourself, what does God want for me in this situation? And what does God want from me in this situation? And do I want what he wants for me? Do I want what he wants from me? Am I speaking accordingly? Am I acting accordingly? And, beloved, be ruthless with yourself about this. I'm going to give you some specific questions to ask because I've been just digging around in my own heart with these things. Can I ask you some really, and I mean these questions to probe, but in love because they're, they're questions that can heal you. Do you want to speak the truth in love? Do you want to do that? That's what God wants. Do you want to do that? Do you want to forgive and be merciful? Do you want to set proper boundaries in this relationship but without bitterness? That takes skill. It takes the help of the Lord. Do you want to do that? That's what God wants. 
Do you want to be patient and kind under provocation? Not a, not a doormat. You've got to set boundaries to be righteous in relationships, but, but to, to be patient and kind under provocation, that's Jesus. Do you want that? Do you want to step out of your self-protectiveness? Because maybe it's not so much your sins against other people, but your, your omission of what is good. Maybe, maybe part of the reason why your relationship is breaking down is because you just want to be protected in, within yourself and not have to deal with the pain of really you know, loving generously. Do you, do you want to give more of yourself than you're currently giving? Do you want to start noticing and caring and investing when it just is not easy, it's not fun, it's not comfortable? Do you want to go that extra mile if Jesus beckons you to do it? Do you want to be generous like your Father in heaven is generous? Do you want to learn to let things roll off? Do you want to learn Christ-like chill? Do you want to be at peace when you're not in control in this relationship? Do you want to be open to new ideas and new ways of thinking? Do you want to be less certain or at least less pompous about your views? Do you want to be corrected? Do you want to be matured? If need be, do you want to simply endure suffering that you just can't change without vindictiveness and just bear up under it and say, you know what, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut, my head down, and suffer as a Christian? Do you want to overcome evil with good? There's a broad spectrum of things that go into healthy relationships. Do you want what God wants? That's the fundamental question because it's good. And you know, if your heart doesn't melt as you think about those kinds of questions, mine doesn't easily melt, then maybe try some fasting. Try afflicting your body for a bit until you begin to have some, some feeling of the ways in which you have gone your own way instead of God's good way for you as your father. I'll wrap up with this. And I really want to say, again, all of this comes from that resting in Christ. Draw near to God. This is not, you're not doing this as an enemy of God. You're not doing this as one who's far away from God. You're doing this as one who is covered by the blood of Jesus and is righteous in Christ. And you come and you say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If insanity is doing the same things over and over, hoping for different results... I've never seen insanity as insane as in relational conflicts. People whose lives are literally hellish with quarrels and fights, and they keep doing the exact same things. Well, here's the fresh way. Here's the new way. Here's what will throw open some windows and doors. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will. He will exalt you. Amen. Draw us near, our good God, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.